Hey, deserving listeners, if you haven't already, please become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. If you become a patron, you get access to our exclusive episodes and you become a part of our community and you contribute to the overall effort to make this podcast the best podcast in the whole world. Because if we have more and more patrons, I can actually dedicate more time and I can get other people to dedicate their time just for you. If you like this sort of thing and you want more of it, become a patron and we can all together make something that is best for everybody. <laughs> you know, for instance, just to get concrete about it, if we, I don't know, if we get maybe at least three or four times as many, as many patrons as we do right now, we'd be able to do this podcast every day of the week and we could talk about news items that are in the, in the news right then and there and just, you know, make an episode in the morning and publish it that day and respond to your emails right away and really just make it something that is, uh, you know, uh, gross. I just burped. Um, (laughs) I'll leave it in. What about that? Um, uh, I'm drinking, uh, you know, some diet Pepsi. What am I going to do that, you know, produces some burping. So, you know, sue me. Uh, if you like burping, then please become a patron because there'll be much more burping. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am the burper, and I am also a licensed therapist and a professor. And today I thought I would just respond to your emails, particularly the patron emails. Another reason to become a patron. Okay, patron Cody emailed in. This is a few months ago. And patron Cody says... I am a child and adolescent psychiatrist in New Orleans, and I'm also a patron of the podcast. I'm working on a paper on projective identification, and I have a question. You mentioned that there are three ways in which it can be brought about. One, by choosing people who have those qualities. Two, by choosing someone susceptible to the identification. And three, by making someone identify this way. I was wondering if you had a reference source for this that I could review. Well, patron Cody, I realize it's probably four months since you emailed me this. And if you're still working on this paper, then you are very similar to me because when I go down a rabbit hole, I spend years writing some papers. I just recently finished a paper on supervision and I thought I was just going to spend, I don't know, couple days and and I ended up spending two months. I spent probably I don't know let's just let's take a, a conservative guess of about 30 to 40 hours per week for two months. I spent just so much time and it was actually really enjoyable because I'd never really done a systematic review of supervision and I'm gonna actually make a podcast or a, a, a patron only episode premium episode about supervision for everybody. It'll pertain to a lot of people because it's not just about me as a supervisor, but also about what it's like to be a supervisee and and the prevalence of just inadequate and sometimes harmful supervision out there is just appalling. And I have a lot of research on that. But anyway, so if you're anything like me, Patron Cody, you're still working on this paper uh, four months later. And to some extent, I kind of hope that you still are because I'm just now getting to this. But for your sake, I hope you've completed this long ago. But anyway... A good resource is called, it's a book by Ogden. Ogden is my favorite writer when it comes to predictive identification because 
he lays it out very understandably, but thoroughly. And the book is called Projective Identification and Psychotherapeutic Technique. So not only projective identity, the whole book is about projective identification, and he also goes over how it's used in therapy for the benefit of the client. And it is highly compelling. And just incidentally, I consider projective identification similar to Ogden as the central feature in human relations and in therapeutic interactions. For some, projective identification is but a small factor or piece of the pie when it comes to human interactions. But I actually, in the expanded definition, it is something that's happening all the time. And when you become aware of it and you become aware of the patterns, it actually is a powerful way of looking at the world. So yeah, Ogden, book called Projective Identification and Psychotherapeutic Technique. It's probably pretty cheap on Amazon right now. I bet you could get it for just a few bucks, honestly. But you you referred to, you know, that there were three ways that projective identification can be brought about. I've actually expanded that to uh, six different ways or uh, several several different ways, I should say. But there's a lot of things I, I could say about it. But basically, I and others like Ogden believe that we, through our childhoods, we will internalize. There's different words for it. Some people use internalization or interjection or there's other words, but I don't like all those silly words because it's the spirit behind the word, really. That's important, not, not the word itself. And I think internalization sums it up for me anyway. And so as we're children, we internalize the relationships we have with other people. And by internalizing these relationships, we internalize other people too. So, for instance, when our parents love us and take care of us, we internalize that relationship of one person loving us and ourselves being loved. So it's strange that we internalize ourselves, but if you work with me on this, it actually ends up working in the end. So we internalize that relationship, and then these relationships become basically templates in our psyche that become a part of our personality. They inform who we are. They inform our expectations. And they also inform our our complexes, if you will. For instance, when we are criticized, when we're overly criticized by someone, say your father is overly critical of you and will frequently uh, jump, you know, jump down your throat for something you're doing wrong or something. Well, if that repeats over and over again, that becomes internalized, that relationship of critical other and criticized self. And the way that that feels and the, and the particular qualities of that become particular to your internalization. For instance, if your father is drinking, then alcohol be- colors that, inter- that interject or that internalization or that representa- internal representation. Or if you are scared that colors that internalization. And so each person's, everyone has a criticized and a, a, you know, a critical internalization because we've all been criticized by our parents. But uh, for some people, it becomes stronger than others. And for some people, and for everyone, it, it always takes on a, the particular quality of their unique experiences. So, 
so that's just something to take note of. Then, as we grow older, this internalization manifests in a number of ways, including a self-voice, a, you know, a self-critical voice of like, you know, you do something, you go to a party and you, you know, talk with other people and then on the way home you, you just beat yourself up for every stupid thing you said. Well, that in all likelihood is because someone beats you up verbally criticizing you as a child and that became internalized and that personality trait is now a part of yourself and you tend to beat yourself up. You also will tend to criticize other people. You will tend to reenact this relationship by embodying the quality of the internalized other and projecting onto other people the perception of the self. So in the original interaction, you were criticized, you felt criticized, and you internalized this experience. And then later on, you might recreate it by criticizing another person and making another person feel the same way you did when you were a child. This is a very common thing, particularly in therapy. And when therapists become aware of it, it is very illuminating and can be very uh, helpful in assessment and in treatment because then it leads to understanding what sort of corrective experience is needed to help people heal and internalize a different experience. So there are a number of different ways that people will manifest. So again, self-criticism, you tend to criticize other people. And you also, through projective identification, need to find other people that will agree with your projections because you need to get rid of them you need to, the whole reason why we do this action, it, there's a number of different reasons why we do it. We do it because we want to reenact things because it just feels good because it's comfortable. But we also reenact them because we're trying to work it out. We, and we also reenact them because we're trying to project things out of us because we're, we have this fantasy that if we recreate it externally, it doesn't, it, it doesn't exist internally. Because left to our own devices, we're just, we're just, we're just sitting alone at home criticizing ourselves and feeling terrible. But if we can criticize someone else or if we can find someone else to criticize us, then it makes that internal conflict external and it gives this fantasy that it no longer exists inside of us and it exists outside of us, which feels better to the ego because it's not us, it's them, right? The only reason why I'm criticizing that idiot is because that person's an idiot, or the only person, the only reason why uh, I am in a world of you know someone criticizing me is because that that asshole is a very critical person. It has nothing to do with me, but in reality, you have internalized quite naturally from your childhood environment a critical other, and the critical person is you, and no one wants to admit that. Uh, and there's you know obviously reasons why we would try to defend against that. So other, uh, so just to review a list of reasons that I've developed over the years as to why the self, why we use projective identification is one part of the self is threatening to, to destroy the self from within. So when you have these warring factions of critical other and criticized self, when you have these things going on inside of you, they are creating internal strife and we will project one side of that conflict into someone else. And again, in that we save ourselves from the internal conflict. Number two, there is an ongoing conflict between two warring parts of the self. It's related to 
number number one. Number three, there is a distasteful or shameful part of the self. I mentioned that earlier, that if you have a critical, in, in the, it, I'm focusing on critical, but it could be a rejecting other that you've internalized. It could be an abusive other you, you've you've internalized. It could be an irresponsible other. It could be a, I don't know, flaky other. There's all sorts of different things that people, angry other, a sad, depressed other, a pathetic other. There's all sorts of things that we will internalize when we're children and then, and then proceed to uh, become, to some extent, ourselves, and then also tend to have a conflict around it internally and protect it. So if we don't like the other that we've internalized that has become a part of us, the critical other that we've internalized, the abandoning, rejecting other that we've internalized, the the pathetic other that we've internalized. This is a shameful part of the self, and through projective identification, we get rid of it. And again, we don't actually get rid of it. It's just a fantasy. It's just a defense. It's a delusion. It's, it's denial. It's not actually getting rid of it, but it feels good to do so. In the same way that displacement feels good or compartmentalization or minimization, the, the defenses feel good to us. They don't actually help us usually. There are functional uh, defense mechanisms, which I've gone over before, but anyway. Number four, there is a cultural, cultural or social pressure to not have that part of the self. This is often not discussed, but when we interact with culture and society, we become a part of a of a system, and this is uh, affecting to us. And for instance, if you have a Republican and other that you've internalized, and being having a Republican identity that interacts with society in different ways, and I'm not going to go into full details on that, but anyway, that's number four. Number five, parts of the self are poorly integrated. So the idea sometimes is through self-work or therapy work is to integrate these parts of the self. So you have one part that is critical and you have another part that feels criticized and feels humiliated or feels inadequate or it feels incompetent or something. And so you have these two parts of the self. Both parts are not very healthy to let linger too long. And both parts will manifest in dysfunctional ways. You'll either find uh, dysfunctional people to criticize, or you'll tend to find very critical people and then proceed to be dysfunctional so they can criticize you. And the one of the things that you can do for yourself is you can integrate these two parts of yourself. You can start to see that these are both actually you and that they are... Uh, it's, you know, we're talking symbolically, so it's hard to put it into words, but you essentially are integrating these parts of yourself that you're denying. So just as a very crude example with the critical thing, you could, you could say to yourself, you know what, I'm kind of a critical person and, and I have a, I have a tendency to do that. And I recognize that and I'm not ashamed of it. I just recognize that I'm not perfect and I've made mistakes and I'm going to apologize to people when that happens. But I recognize that that part is a part of me. I also recognize that I sometimes will kind of almost purposefully act irresponsible or purposefully act incompetent. So, and that sometimes pulls people in to criticize me. And I'm on, it's, it's subconscious. I don't really recognize it, but I, I recognize that I do that sometimes and I realize that that's part of me. And again, I'm not ashamed of it. It's not, it's not something to be ashamed of. It's something I internalized 
from my childhood, and I accept and I welcome that, and I'm and I'm done fighting that aspect of myself. That's a crude way of describing one path or one end result or one milestone on the integration of parts of self path. All right, number six. It is comforting since it confirms our views of our of ourselves and our relationships. So I mentioned this earlier in that we will look for things that are comforting and familiar to us. And nothing is more comforting and familiar than our childhood. It was a time when we felt people were taking care of us. Even when we're abused, in some ways we felt like at least someone was likely watching out for us, feeding us, clothing us, you know, putting a roof over our head. There's something very comforting about that. That's why nostalgia is such a big deal. You know, that's why people will turn to things from their childhood to comfort them. You know, comfort food is often things that we ate when we were children. Even when our childhood wasn't so great, it still has a comforting nature to it. Regression is, you know, just one of those things. It can be complicated by PTSD from from childhood, but, but anyway our psyche will tend to, when stressed out, want to turn to something to comfort it. And one of the things that we will turn to comfort ourselves is by recreating our past. And one of the ways we can recreate our past is to recreate our early relationships. So if your early relationship was somewhat typified by, again, a critical father, then when you are stressed out or when you're suffering, you might actually dysfunctionally try to recreate a situation where someone criticizes you, not because it's consciously beneficial or or consciously enhancing to your well-being, but it's merely reminiscent of something that happened a long time ago and a part of you is, is soothed by that familiarity. For some people the childhood dysfunction is so repeated that anything outside of that becomes very anxiety-provoking. For instance, again, going to the critical part, um, well, let's, let's change because it's like I'm hammering on this critical thing. It's like, uh, say you had an abandoning mother, a mother who was either depressed or literally abandoned the family or was very rejecting of you or just not very emotionally respondent or, you know, attached to you. Let's say you had a mother like that. Well, when you uh, have that repeated over and over and over again, and you engage in a relationship as an adult, and your romantic partner is not abandoning you, then it might feel so uncomfortable to you that you will force them to reject you. This happens a lot, I'm telling you. When you start looking at human relationships and human patterns, you start seeing this over and over again. So it's illogical, right? It doesn't make any logical sense. If if you were abandoned and rejected by your mother, you would be the first person to know that finding a rejecting other to be involved with is a terrible thing and can hurt a lot. Yet, we see over and over again, if someone has a rejecting parent, they tend to be attracted to rejecting uh, spouses and tend to even socialize and manipulate the other person unconsciously to reject them. It's a tragedy of the human condition, but yet common. So it's part of this is because it's just so comforting. And the 
absence of that element in a attachment relationship can actually feel quite uh, worrisome to the person because the whole idea is it's like, well, I don't know, I don't know what I'm dealing with here. The person is not abandoning me. This is the unconscious speaking, sub the subconscious speaking. Is I, I'm in a relationship right now. I'm in. A, I feel. I feel the feels right now. I feel attached, but I'm not getting a vibe that is familiar to me. And I can't really put my finger on it, but I don't like it. And so I better run. Or I better figure out a way to make it comfortable for me by recreating what's comforting to me. And the thing that seems to be missing here is an ongoing issue of abandonment. So I better better make sure that that happens. Now, a very easy way to make that happen is to find someone who happens to be generally abandoning or rejecting or neglecting. And then you proceed to become emotionally attached to that person because you're very interested in that person subconsciously because they will give you the ability to use projective identification to deny parts of yourself that you want to deny, want to deny and also recreate early relationships as a way of, again, getting comfort, but also as a way of trying to work out something for the new. I realize that as I'm responding to Patreon Cody right now, that it's sort of like that uh, list in Monty Python, you know, the, the Spanish Inquisition has two main qualities, surprise and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's hilarious and they keep adding more. But anyway, I keep adding more and more things. But another reason why we recreate our early uh, relationships and our internal relationship representations is because we have an unconscious, subconscious wish to work it out, to create a creative experience. And, and sometimes our subconscious, unconscious actually gets it right. We will find, say, a romantic partner, say the abandoning, neglecting mother, and the a person wake you know grows up and gets involved with someone and then tries to make them reject them tries to make their their adult romantic partner reject them but this this other person is differentiated enough to be able to detect what's happening and doesn't engage in that behavior and then instead provides a corrective experience by not neglecting that person and so the person recreated the conditions of neglect from the other, but then the other did not reject them. And then they internalized that experience as a corrective experience. And if you repeat that over and over and over again, eventually the rejecting other interject or internalization or internal relationship representation becomes less and less powerful in the psyche and therefore will have less of a need to be defended against, will... Uh, will manifest less and less and will be a less and less a part of the personality of that person. They'll tend to be less rejecting and neglectful of other people. They'll tend to be less rejecting and neglecting of themselves. They'll tend to be less attracted to neglecting people. The obvious thing here is therapy, right? Because therapy can be a purposeful way of providing corrective experiences. When clients come to me, and I become sufficiently attached with them through transference and through projective identification, they will start to socialize me to agree with their early relationship internalizations. 
And when I detect them, which I spend a good amount of time trying to figure out, I will try to provide a corrective experience to, to help them heal or to help them internalize a new thing and to help diminish that problematic internalization. For instance, someone comes into therapy and say the critical, you know, this is, this is the person with the critical childhood. They come in and they start doing things that are obviously irresponsible. And if I were his friend or his, I don't know, his partner, I might get tricked into being critical of him and say like, what are you doing? Why are you quitting your job on such a flimsy idea or why aren't why don't you have a job or why why would you i don't know there's just so many reasons why people can there's just so many ways to manipulate others to criticize you and believe me they're they're abundant but anyway so as a therapist I might have this impulse could because the client is trying to manipulate me to to agree with this early representation where I, as an authority figure, which naturally is like a dad, will start to criticize the, the client. Well, if I notice it well enough and I can monitor my countertransference and really take a breath and think about what's happening to me, I can notice that I have this impulse. And then I say, huh, I wonder if the client is now, because we're attached, recreating this situation. What can I do to provide a corrective experience? Well, that can involve me not criticizing them. In fact, I can compliment them. And I don't do it, I don't lie. I actually shift my approach or my narrative to actually motivate me to genuinely uh, compliment him. So say he quits his job on a whim and says, I don't know what I was thinking. I, you know, I quit my job and I don't know. And so a friend might be like, dude, what are you doing? Like you, you, you need to, you need to think before you act like that. Okay. I have this impulse to say that. I think I say, no, that's probably, we're, pro- we're probably in a reenactment right now. So instead I say to him and I, I shift my perspective in my mind and I'm, I come from a very genuine place and I say something like, well, good for you. It sounds like it's a it's a move forward for you. It sounds like you really didn't like that job or you wanted to see what would happen. Or, yeah, a lot of people have a hard time making choices like that and and you did it just like that. How, you know, it's good for you. I'm sure this is I'm sure this is a good thing, you know. And I don't I don't have a hard time doing that cuz I tend to see the world in a way that makes it easy for me to see things positively a lot of times. So if, if, if I do that and repeat, then it gives him an opportunity to internalize a new representation. And in the process of that, it also diminishes the critical interject that he has inside of him. So that's the corrective experience and that's transference, counter-transference and that's projective identification. And So uh, that is what I will say about that. Okay, patron Cody, I hope that that answers your question. And and let me know about your paper about projective identification. As a psychiatrist in New Orleans, I'm sure you're a smart cookie and have a lot of really interesting things to say. And what I find is that projective identification is such a complicated thing that 
each person describes it differently, which is fun and also scary at the same time. So patron Cody, let me know what you come up with and stay in touch because I love my patrons. We love our patrons. If you haven't already, go to patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast. We're pushing for the next level. I think we need about like 400 patrons. I think we're at about like 310 right now or something. And so we're really pushing for it. Let me let me read some patrons. Someone emailed me and said, when you'd read my name on 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 the air, I was freaking out. I felt so awesome. We got patron Egina, Margaret, Susan, Zach, Bianca, Lois, Courtney, Danielle, Xavier, Simon, April, Yvonne, Jackie, David, Mark, Juan, Lyndon, patron Lyndon, Dan, Daniel, Tyler, Amanda, Yoshiyuki, Yoshiyuki, fellow Japanese person, Annie, Susie, Kate, Nils, Nils, that's a very, uh, See, where is he from? Probably from somewhere other than the United States. Yeah, he's 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 a he's a cool name from a cool place. We got Tanya and James and Michelle and Jessica and Leslie and Kayla and Hillary and Timothy and Daniel and Ruth. So all of you, plus many more, thank you so much for, for becoming patrons. Uh, like I said, we're trying to. Well, actually, I should tell everybody that if you become a patron, then and we get enough people to become a patron, then. The next, we're close to getting there to the point where I can actually start paying the co-hosts. Incidentally, I'll I'll sort of spoil it by saying that I'm already paying the co-hosts, but if we get to the next level, I'll pay them twice as much. So if you like the co-hosts and you think that they deserve to be paid, which I certainly do, then please either you know up your pledge per month or become a patron if you haven't already. We apparently have something like 50 to 100,000 listeners or something. So if only a small percentage of you become patrons, then we can really take this to the next level. All right. Thanks so much. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it so much. You really, really do. Honestly, genuinely, you do deserve it. And so do I. We all deserve it. It's not just you. It's me. We all deserve it. Let's take care of each other. Okay, bye.